The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. In human origins, we'd seen just in the last seven years quite a big revelation about us interbreeding with, for instance, Neanderthals. So this understanding that we are, you know, we're not just a kind of chaste, uh, very kind of uh, circumscribed species. Um, since our origin, we've actually hybridised and interbred with other species. We're finding the same thing when we look at other species, you know, things as different as apples. That was Alice Roberts, who's been talking to us about humans' relationship with other species over time. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Alice Roberts, who's an academic author and broadcaster. And indeed, her BBC4 series, Digging for Britain, is currently airing. She's also recently published a new book on how humans have tamed several important plants and animals over the course of our history. And this was the subject of her conversation with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. I'm here with Alice Roberts, who's an anthropologist and professor of public engagement in science. Today, she's here talking about her new book, Tamed, 10 Species That Changed Our World. So your book considers how wild species from dogs, cattle, horses to wheat, potatoes and apples have become closely allied and intertwined with the lives of humans. You're looking at these changes through many different lenses, archaeology, genetics, geography. So why did you choose to look at these species in this way? I think I've been interested in human origins for a very long time and uh, spent most of my own research career and then also uh, written popular science books and made television programmes about the origin of humans looking at who we are and where we come from. And in order to tell that story, you can bring together different strands of science, uh, namely archaeology, which is looking at the evidence of material culture in the past, uh, paleontology, so the, the actual fossil remains of our ancestors, and now genetics as well. And genetics, you can actually focus on on living individuals, but you can also get, of course, DNA from ancient individuals that are long dead as well. And coming together, those three strands prove very powerful because we can we can tackle and actually answer some of the questions that have been taxing us for uh, probably centuries, actually, about who we are and where we came from. So with that background in anthropology... I started looking at other species and I, I'm, I'm interested in the origin of species generally. So, you know, I, I, I suppose I'm an evolutionary biologist, but focusing on the anthropology bit of it. But I started to broaden out a bit and look at the species that had joined us on our evolutionary journey. And and I also realised that there were there were similar histories of the uh, the discoveries in each of those in each of those species. Uh, to what we'd seen in human origins. So in human origins, we'd seen just in the last seven years quite a big revelation about us interbreeding with, for instance, Neanderthals. So this understanding that we are, 
you know, we're not just a kind of chaste, uh, very kind of uh, circumscribed species. Um, since our origin, we've actually hybridised and interbred with other species. We're finding the same thing when we look at other species. You know, things as different as apples. We're finding that apples interbred with wild crab apples as they spread across Europe. Um, so that new understanding is emerging from bringing together archaeology and genetics. You explain how when Darwin um, set about writing his origin species in the mid 1800s um, in order to lay groundwork for his theories of natural selection, um, he uh, first explored what he called artificial selection. But you explained that that word artificial isn't necessarily what we would understand it to be today. Um, so could you perhaps explain what he meant and how he believed that we tailored our creation of other species? He spends quite a lot of time at the beginning of the origin of species looking at artificial selection, looking at selective breeding and how we've changed characteristics in, in our livestock and in our crops over time. And he discusses dogs and he discusses the livestock that farmers are keeping. And he also talks quite a lot about pigeons. And uh, he knows that his audience, his readership, is going to be familiar with this idea. He knows that people are going to understand that farmers can select animals with particular traits and breed them on, and then you get a spread of those traits through the population. So he's kind of setting the stage for dropping the bombshell about natural selection. He's saying, look, we know that we can have this effect on other animals by influencing which animals get to reproduce and which ones don't. What if the environment could just do that naturally? What if this just happens because of animals interacting with their environment? Some survive and reproduce better than others, and therefore that is a mechanism for change. And that's what natural selection is. I mean, it's so amazingly simple, um, but it was, you know, people had really struggled to understand how evolution could possibly happen. Of course, he didn't come up with the idea of evolution. People have been discussing that for a long time. They had all the evidence and the fossil record, uh, but they couldn't really understand how that change had come about. And that's that was his kind of moment of genius, was to, was to say, I reckon this is how it happens. And of course, we, we still think that that is absolutely central to, to evolutionary theory, to modern evolutionary biology. Uh, so uh, it was a very clever way of doing it. I think what's interesting when you read The Origin as well is that you can you can almost hear the cogs of his mind whirring because I think his own study of what he called artificial selection helped him get to his insight as well, helped him get to that conclusion. Um, and I think that we still use the term artificial selection now for the kind of impact that we have on other species when we're breeding them on selectively to uh, to focus on particular traits or to enhance particular traits in a, in a population. Uh, but it is essentially the same thing that's happening in natural selection. So I kind of argue in the book that we should be calling it human-mediated natural selection because there's, there's not really much of a line between what we're doing to other animals. And for instance, when you look at apples, most wild apples are tiny little apples that are dispersed by birds apart from the ones that come from Kazakhstan, which are the ancestors of all our eating apples. And that's because they entered into a relationship, a kind of evolutionary relationship with bears. And bears like bigger apples. They don't want to eat those little tiny ones. They, so, so bears would be selecting bigger apples to eat and helping those apples to disperse. And so bears are exerting a selective pressure on the apples. And eventually the apples in the in the Tian Shan Mountains and the foothills of the Tian Shan Mountains ended up being these big fruited apples. Now, we wouldn't call that artificial selection of large fruited apples by bears. We would just call that co-evolution. So I think sometimes um, we draw too much of a hard line between our interaction with other species and how we modify them um, and actually what's going on right across the rest of nature.
if we can talk about that big revelation of interbreeding, could you just um, kind of explain what we know about this interbreeding in our past and how does it lead us to reappraise what we know about our species today? What we know about interbreeding now is that humans emerge as a species in Africa. That's that's what we thought before, but that's, that's what we still think. Uh, they then spread around the world sometime after 100,000 years ago, reaching Australia by 60,000 years ago, coming into Europe around 40,000 years ago, eventually making it into the Americas around 15,000 years ago. Ten years ago, we would have said that they didn't interbreed with any archaic human species or any other human species that were that were still hanging around. Um, and of course, now we've got uh, the genetic evidence that there was interbreeding. So the first paper on that was published in 2010, um, by Ed Green and Svante Parbo, based in Leipzig. And they had extracted DNA from a piece of Neanderthal bone. And it was it was from the genome. It was from the chromosomes of this Neanderthal. And they were then able to compare that genome with modern human genomes and say some modern human genomes are a lot a lot more similar, well, a little bit more similar to the to the Neanderthal DNA than others. And so we had this evidence of interbreeding after that out of Africa event. So people with a um, broadly African heritage, I mean, everybody's mixed up a lot, but people with a broadly African heritage have have neg- negligible amounts of extra Neanderthal DNA in them, uh, whereas I'm 2.7% Neanderthal, which is more Neanderthal than Bill Bailey, <laughs> interestingly. Uh, so, um, And it's not all the same bit of Neanderthal DNA as well. So on average, people of broadly kind of European or Asian heritage have 1% to 4% Neanderthal DNA in their genomes, uh, but it's not all the same bit. So if you add it all up, we've got about half a Neanderthal genome in existence today. So that kind of old question of what happens to the Neanderthals, it's like, well, they're still around. They're just kind of little bits of them parceled up in us. Uh, but it is, I mean, it's quite a it's quite a big revelation. And it it does mean that you start looking at species in a different way, our own species in a different way and, and other species as well, uh, that there there is this um, theme of hybridisation, which we hadn't really suspected was quite so prevalent before. One thing I was struck by was how just how new some of the discoveries are, particularly in the world of genetics. Um, and you write that it's been pretty much the last five years that these these paths have been forged. Yeah, absolutely. It's been terribly exciting and I loved writing the book because it was uh, this kind of process of discovery. I felt like an archaeologist digging through the literature and very recent literature, as you say, uh, to to find all of these new insights that are emerging. And and it really is quite stunning, the, the sort of, I think, the, the sudden transformation that you get when the geneticists started looking at small packages of DNA, like mitochondrial DNA, and and now they're doing genome-wide analyses, so looking at the DNA contained in the chromosomes of of living organisms, or undead organisms as well, so they can now get DNA out of mud, which is just extraordinary. Um, So we've suddenly got this absolute wealth of data that we just haven't had before. And what's interesting about that is it's, it's providing us with new insights, but the most powerful insights come from a combination of genetics and archaeology. So it's not as though it's superseding our more traditional approaches to the past, you know, history, archaeology. Um, it, is, it, it is joining up with them um, and uh, enhancing them. And what's so marvellous is that these genetic discoveries can be used to track the forming of our social structures that we recognise today. Could you talk a bit how you explore that in the book, for instance, in the journey of wheat, when wheat was first farmed and what that meant for our social structures? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, the, the farming of wheat is uh, something that emerges between about 
11,000 and 8,000 years ago, we have people starting to cultivate wheat in the Fertile Crescent in the Near East. And alongside all those other wonderful founder crops, the Neolithic, so barley and uh, lentils and peas and broad beans. Um, and it's a it's a relationship which is kind of based on, it doesn't come out of nowhere. So it's based on an intensification uh, of the use of those wild feeds. And then gradually we see more and more cultivation. And as those feeds are cultivated, we see changes in them, which is, which is really what domestication is. So domestication is sort of the change in the species in response to being cultivated or, um, I suppose, bred in the case of livestock. So in in wheat, we see changes, including an increase in the size of grains. We see that the grains stick onto the backbone, the rachis of the wheat, increasingly. I don't think that the early farmers are actually choosing those traits. I think they're just coming out um, as they cultivate the wheat. Um, and you can you can actually come up with scenarios for for why that selection pressure might exist, and that's quite interesting because I think usually we you know when we're telling these stories we we talk about people being very thoughtful and approaching this with forethought and choosing particular traits and choosing to breed them on. But I do think a lot of it is coming out of you know sheer uh, just interaction with those with those wild species, which then eventually end up being domesticated, and the conversion of these what presumably were fallback foods, I mean, they're grasses, um, into into staples means that humans have these this very dependable food supply. And as we get um, cultivation and these first farming communities growing up, people are also settling in the landscape and we start to see a population expansion. So um, hunter-gatherers um, are are not able to expand their populations in the same way. And some of that actually comes about because they are moving around the landscape and you simply can't carry that many babies around with you. Uh, So once you're settled, you can have more babies. And also once you've got a more dependable food supply, you can feed more people as well. So we do see an expansion. And and interestingly, what we see now from um, the combination of archaeology and genetics is that this very much was an expansion of populations, people on the move, as well as those ideas. So people were actually moving with their crops, with their livestock and settling. So there was this wave of expansion right across Europe. So that by 8,500 years ago, you've got farmers on Cyprus. So they must have set off in boats with their cattle in their boats, with their, with their crops to plant and off they go to Cyprus and, and set up new farms. So they're sort of pioneers. It's sort of the very ancient Wild West, isn't it? And it ripples right across Europe and reaches Britain by 6,000 years ago. You hypothesise as well that um, it may have been dogs that helped humans survive the last ice age. Um, So could you talk perhaps about the alliance between humans and wolves that became dogs? I start the bit with dogs because they're our oldest, most faithful friends. And the evidence now suggests that they were domesticated right back in the depths of the Ice Age. So we're looking at 30 to 40,000 years ago. We've got some skulls which look as though they might be very early dogs. There's one from Goyer Cave in Belgium, which is mm, suggestive, although some people think it's just a weird wolf. Um, There's another one from a cave in Siberia. Um, The cave's called Razbuinitsha Cave. Um, And so the dog skull is called Razbo. And I hate that lots of people consider Razbo as a dog name now because I think it's great. Um, And also the genetics suggest that uh, the split between dogs and wolves uh, happened you know, some 30,000 years ago. So this is amazing because this is uh, 
this is way before farming, you know, the earliest glimmers of farming are 11,000 years ago. So this is um, right back in the depths of the Ice Age. We're talking about groups of hunter-gatherers somewhere in Eurasia. We're not entirely sure where. Um, the archaeology and the genetics haven't come to a consensus on that yet. So, you know, that's that's something to watch out for in the next few years, I think. Uh, but somewhere in Eurasia, uh, groups of hunter-gatherers teamed up with wolves and I think it's probably more likely that the wolves chase them rather than them choosing the wolves. I don't think they're going out and catching wolves. I think wolves are probably coming close, maybe scavenging off carcasses that are left over from the hunt. Uh, and then gradually they're tolerated and perhaps encouraged. And then before you know it, they're accompanying the hunters on their hunts. And it's very difficult to find evidence or to, you know, to test these hypotheses. But people have certainly suggested that that could have been key to some groups of hunter-gatherers surviving through the last glacial maximum, the peak of the last ice age 20,000 years ago. And have even suggested that that kind of formidable team of uh, dog and human hunter could have helped to speed the demise of the the great iconic megafauna of the ice age, things like mammoths and woolly rhino and European bison and all of those animals that are under pressure because of climate change after the end of the Ice Age, but um, are, are being heavily predated as well. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. The relationship with horses is another, key, is another key one you consider in the book. Could you talk a little bit about what the relationship and the domestication of horses by humans meant for um, the movement of humans? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, that comes along relatively late, really. It's you know, it's, it's after the Neolithic, it's after the beginning of farming, it's as we um, get into the beginning of the Bronze Age. So the earliest evidence that we have of horse domestication, it is a brilliant piece of evidence, comes from 5,500 years ago from a site called Botai in northern Kazakhstan. And in fact, that site has got a few different suggestive pieces of evidence, like the metapodials, the the leg bones, the lower leg bones of the horses are becoming more slender, and that's a potential sign of domestication. Um, there's also evidence for um, drinking milk, and uh, it's I think it's more likely that they were drinking the milk of domesticated mares rather than wild ones. Um, so those are kind of highly suggestive pieces of evidence. But for me, the the kind of smoking gun piece of evidence is these teeth that they've discovered with wear on them and very specific patterns of wear. So they are teeth from the back of the anterior row of horses' teeth. So horses have a gap in their mouths between the front teeth and the back teeth called the bars of the mouth, or I'm an anatomist, say the diastema. And this is where the bit sits if you're going to put a bridle and a bit on a horse. And um, ill-fitting bits can wear against the back of the front teeth. And this is exactly what they found in this 5,500-year-old site, which is just amazing. It's a really perfect example of archaeologists doing very precise, careful looking and coming up with some amazing evidence. It's the kind of thing you'd stand up in a, in a court of law and go, yep, they were keeping horses. They had bridles and bits on them. And uh, so we've got these very early horse riding cultures emerging on the, the western end of the Eurasian steppes. And they do start to expand. I mean, this, you know, this idea has legs, four legs, and it, <laughs> and it expands quickly. 
And we see horses, domesticated horses in Germany and the Middle East by 5,000 years ago. And then uh, uh, actually around that time, there's a there's a kind of new culture which emerges on the steppe, which um, is a horse riding culture, but also they have covered wagons, so they're on the move. And they have uh, pit burials, so they bury their dead in these pit burials with mounds over the top, so uh, kurgans. Uh, but the the Russian word for the pit burial, Yamnaya, gives these these people their name. And what we think we've got, I mean, this has been published, and I and I, you know, I'm very convinced by it. What we think we've got is evidence from several different perspectives of an expansion of people from the steppe into Europe at this point in history. And they are, we're seeing them archaeologically. So we see their culture spreading. Uh, so we can see their pit burials and we can see these horse riding people and they, they, we can see them being buried with, um, with, with horses and with the trappings of horses as well. Uh, we can pick them up genetically. So we can see a big wave of expansion of these people, these Yamnaya people across Europe as well. And what we also think is that we can still hear them today. We can hear the echoes of them uh, because we think they're bringing the first Indo-European languages into Europe. So all the languages that we now speak pretty much, apart from Basque probably, which is a bit odd, not sure where to put that. Um, but, you know, all the languages are speaking uh, that are as different as, um, you know, English and Urdu all fit on this on this Indo-European language tree. And we think this was a language being spoken by these horse-riding nomads and that they expanded right across Europe. So if we could talk a little bit about the final chapter in your book, um, after you consider these nine species that humans have interacted with and um, changed by their behaviours, whether willfully or not, um, you then look at how um, humans have domesticated themselves. Well, the interesting thing about humans is that um, I think I think there's pretty good evidence now that we have kind of tamed ourselves, we've kind of auto-domesticated. And uh, the reasons for that, uh, or the reasons for um, thinking that that is the case, is kind of looking at what goes on in other animals when they become domesticated and the kind of I don't, the, the domestication syndrome, a group of things that seem to come along together. And we're seeing very similar things in, in humans over time. So um, expansion of brains is one thing and kind of increasing um, sociability, I suppose, so being more and more sociable in groups. Um, uh, and reduced aggression is the, is the really key one. And obviously, in order to live in dense groups, in order to live in um, villages and towns and cities, we've we've actually got to tolerate each other very, very well. Um, so in the same way that we might have been selecting, for instance, early dogs to be less aggressive simply by booting the, um, the more aggressive ones out or doing something worse um, and then allowing the less aggressive ones to breed and then we see increasing tameness over time, we might have just been doing that thing naturally to ourselves. You know, you exclude the more aggressive people from society and so over time you're actually going to see a biological change, not just a not just a, um, a behavioural change, you know, that's happening during the lifetime of an individual, um, but actually something which is which is essentially written in the genes. I mean, it's very difficult to separate nature and nurture, but we think that there is this developing reduction in in aggression. And interestingly, what you see in dogs is that um, alongside a reduction in aggression, there are changes in skull shape. Uh, so we think that there's probably a suite of genes that are being influenced that affect not only behaviour, but affect actually the, the look, the shape of your body as well. Um, and we're uncovering some of those mechanisms now. So um, human humans are quite interesting to look at from a um, comparative perspective. We've got quite odd skulls and we've got very short snouts. Our snouts are kind of tucked right underneath our brain cases. 
Um, and dogs have shorter snouts compared with wolves. So maybe that is a similarity. Um, so maybe there's a, um, a similar thing going on with craniofacial development, which is which is somehow coming along for the ride, I think, uh, when you're selecting for reduced aggressiveness. So that's the kind of thing that we're looking at in the, in the domestication syndrome. So we've already discussed how... Um recent a lot of these discoveries are but for you what are the projects or uh, a project that's happening right now where do you think our next big revelation is going to come from and one that really excites you i think um for me the the revelations or, or the um the discoveries there are i mean there's three areas if, if you'll permit me three areas to get into uh one of which is this you know is this wonderful tool of combining archaeology with genetics to really delve into uh, the deep history of species and to really understand more about our own history and prehistory in a lot more detail. And that I find incredibly exciting. I think the second big area of revelation for me is is related to modern biology. So we're discovering that we are a hybrid species. That's a relatively new discovery. You know, it's only in the last seven years and we're finding more and more evidence of that. Uh, so we are not able to draw the... Um, the beautifully kind of constrained lines, the boundaries around species that that we thought we were able to, you know, going back previous to seven years, really. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's quite a big thought in biology, I think. And if we look at our domesticates too, we're seeing that they continue to interbreed with wild species all the way through. And actually that species boundary is really permeable and it's not just permeable in one direction. So we've got wild species, wild genes coming into domesticates. We've got domesticated genes passing out into wild species as well. So this is interesting about, you know, how do we how do we cope with that evolving species concept? Um, but then the the other aspect of it, the third aspect of it, is how that knowledge helps us uh, with making big decisions and, uh, you know, how we apply that knowledge uh, when we're looking at the future of farming on the one hand and also conservation. You know, how do we deal in conservation with this idea that actually you can't draw lines around species? We've we've constantly got a flow of genes in and out. That's really tricky. You know, there, there is no such thing as species purity in this new view. Um, so, we you know, we have to tackle that and we have to work out what that, what that means. Uh, and I think for... For agriculture, for me, this evolving species concept is one of the reasons, just one of the reasons, why we probably need to look at GM again. I say probably, no, we do. We do need to look at it again. You know, we've got new techniques to do it that are much more precise than before. Um, We have the potential now for uh, making our crops and our livestock uh, more robust and more productive and potentially also actually lessening the amount of agrochemicals that we're putting onto farmland. So I've heard people talking about GM organic, which is really peculiar. I mean, that just, you know, if you think back to the 1990s, you never thought that those two words were going to appear in the same phrase quite so joined together. Uh, but, you know, it's the idea that if you were to um, make crops more productive um, by genetically um, modifying them, um, then perhaps you need less in the way of chemical fertiliser. If you make them more resistant naturally to pests, then you need less in the way of chemical pesticides. Um, so I think that these are probably discussions we need to be having quite widely, actually. Um, you know, the, the technology's there, uh, the possibilities are there, uh, and I think that it is one of those things where I think that you know science belongs to everybody and we should all be having these conversations. From the nine species that feature in your list that aren't humans, what do you think or, or maybe hypothesise might be might have had the strongest impact on humans? 
Oh, that's really tricky. What a tricky question. I like tricky questions. Um, I think that um, one of the one of the reasons I chose each of those species was because I felt that they had made an impact on on humanity. Uh, I think that um, you know, as we as we discussed, that dogs um, probably had a really significant impact in helping human hunters, especially through the peak of the last ice age. And I think that. Oh, you know, uh, picking between cattle and horses. I mean, horses have affected us in so many ways. They have they provide meat and milk, but also obviously transport. Um, and I think horses have, oh, if I had to pick one, it probably would be horses. Because of the role that they've played, it's a rather negative reason, actually, but because of the role that they've played in warfare. So they did, um, you know, transform warfare. On horseback, you can sweep, swoop in and raid other people's camps. You can steal their livestock. And then by the Iron Age, we've got mounted cavalry. And horses continue to be an incredibly important part of uh, the military uh, across the world, wherever they are, right through up until the First World War. And I think sometimes we overlook it. I've just made a programme about um, Hadrian's cavalry, which will be the last programme in the series of Digging for Britain this year, which hopefully will be on in December. And um, we kind of focused on the cavalry because I think that, you know, sometimes you kind of overlook them, especially when you're thinking about the Romans in Britain. There's this, there's this extreme focus on the legions. And that's actually because of the Romans. So the Romans themselves wrote a lot about the legions because the legionaries were Roman citizens and the, the cavalry were all auxiliaries. So they were not Roman citizens. So they didn't care that much about the cavalry um interestingly uh so uh, yeah so i think i think sometimes we kind of overlook that role of horses but yeah i think if you took horses out of human history human history would look very different indeed i think the one species that we probably wouldn't notice the lack of is chickens i think we'd do something <laughs> else but although actually chickens are becoming like the most important meat on the planet now so i think now they're really important but i think kind of throughout human history probably wouldn't have noticed too much if chickens had disappeared Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, 10 Species That Changed Our World by Alice Roberts is published by Hutchinson and is out now. Thank you. Okay, so that was Alice Roberts in conversation with Eleanor Evans. Now, just before we go, I should mention that our Christmas issue has just gone on sale in the UK and in our digital formats internationally. It features articles on the Peasants' Revolt, Alfred the Great, Abraham Lincoln the Halifax disaster and many other topics. Look out for it in all good news agents now. And if you're outside the UK, this edition will be appearing in a few weeks' time. Well, that's about it for today, but please do listen in next Monday where we'll be discussing the eating habits of the Dickensian era. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. <laughs>